Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly warning that there is occasional use of strong language. Brought to you by Penguin. And I was sitting there going, hey, bloody hell, I can't get this bloody great clean. And my mother came whizzing round, pulled me up by the scruff of the neck into the house. And she said, you are going for elocution lessons. I didn't even know what elocution was. I was five when that happened. Hello and welcome to the weekly Penguin podcast. Now, this is the place where we take a look into the artistic minds of our guests through a collection of objects that they have chosen. Now, my name is Nihal Arthanaika. Today, of course, like most people, I'm working from home. So please forgive any glitches in sound or perhaps the sound of a 17-week-old puppy barking and chewing at a desk or indeed two kids just having a friendly fight. My guest today is a journalist and broadcaster. She has presented BBC Radio 4's Woman's Hour since 1987. She has received both an OBE and a damehood for her services to broadcasting. Her book is called Fat Cow, Fat Chance, and it comes out this month. It is the honest personal account of what it's like to be fat when society dictates that being skinny is the norm. And today she's down the line from London. It's Dame Jenny Murray. Jenny, welcome. Hello, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. It's great to have you here. Now, Jenny, you've got uh, some objects with you which have inspired your creative process. But before we get into those, um, I just want to ask you about how difficult it was for you to write Fat Cow, Fat Chance. It wasn't difficult at all because I had become extremely angry. You know, it's a it's a very powerful title, Fat Cow, Fat Chant. Mm. And I've become extremely angry at the number of people, uh, men, it was always men, women never did it, who, when I was driving along in my mini or on my bike or walking in the park, some bloke would pass and say, oh, fat cow, or worse, you know, or who ate all the pies, that kind of thing. And then I was at a conference about obesity and metabolic surgery. I don't call it bariatric surgery, it's metabolic surgery because fatness is all about the metabolism and the hormones. Um, And I heard this young man who stood up and said, isn't it interesting that we have hate crimes which are illegal? Uh, Like it's illegal to call somebody out on their race, on their disability, on their sex, on their gender. He listed all these things. He said, do you notice what's missing from that list? Obesity. And I thought, oh my goodness, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. And I thought, why don't I do something about this? Because so many people are obese. Nobody really understands the science of why Some people can eat as many chips as they like and other people look at a chip and put on a stone. There is real scientific evidence about why these things happen. Genetics, environment, you know, a whole list of things that we need to understand so that we don't spend our time fat-shaming people. And I thought, I have to write this book. I have to write the book that is angry about fat shaming. 
is not part of the body positivity group because I was 64 when I finally decided I had to have the surgery to do something about it. That was my fat chance, was learning about what the surgery could do. And I thought, I've got to just be angry about the fat shaming, making people understand what obesity means to your health, you know, the risk of type 2 diabetes, the risk of losing your mobility, all of those things people need to know about those. And people also need to understand the science. Why do some people get fat and others don't? Were you a family, though, Jenny, that discussed those issues outwardly? You mentioned the book about both your paternal and your maternal grandmother and what they went through. Is this something you grew up with knowing or something you discovered later in life? I don't think anybody's known about it until the last 10, 20 years, because the science, particularly the genetics, and nobody really discussed it except for my mother insisting on the one hand, you know, she was a wartime person. She'd been through rationing. She'd known what it was not to have the sugar to make a nice cake and not to have a really good, well, it was a good diet, actually, because people didn't get so fat on it. But, you know, not to have a diet where you could make gorgeous, tasty things. And then, of course, I was born in 1950, when rationing was starting to come off. And suddenly, she and my grandmother were able to make wonderful things. And so as an expression of their love, women who were housewives who devoted all their time to looking after the house and the people they cared for and producing wonderful food was really their main objective in life and at the same time thinking oh we mustn't let her get fat and whilst my granny is never worried about being fat that was just dismissed as not being important my mother Uh, was obsessed with me being fat. So I was constantly torn between, come on, eat everything up, you know, don't leave anything on your plate. We've spent a lot of time and effort making this beautiful food for you. And then, oh, uh, be careful, you know, you're getting a bit fat. And that went on throughout my life. My mother never welcomed me to her house without saying, oh, you've got a bit thin, love, or, oh, my goodness, you've got a bit fat. (laughs) I know that you write in the book that um, when you were around 14, she said, don't worry, love, you're not fat, you're just big boned. So did that change? Did she ever say you're fat? Yeah. The the first time it happened was when I was at university and I'd gone through the classic thing, which apparently still happens, that in the first year and a half, uh, people put on about a stone and a half because... They suddenly start eating a lot of chips in the canteen. Uh, They make a lot of toast in their (laughs) student accommodation. Uh, They start to drink alcohol in a way that they have never done before. And my parents were away working in Turkey. They decided to drive across Europe, get on a boat in Holland and come to Hull, which is where I was at university. Um, They hadn't seen me for the first year of my university. And uh, I went down to the dock to meet them and they drove straight past me. 
And then my father suddenly realised, because I was waving like crazy, uh, and he stopped and he jumped out of the car and welcomed me and said, oh, come on, you know, let's go and see where you're living and all of that. And uh, my mother didn't say a word. And then when I got into the back of the car, out came the tirade. Good God, what's happened to you? You've got so fat, you look like a baby elephant. That was the first time it really happened. Before that... I just inherited my father's bone structure and I was a big girl. I was not a fat girl. Suddenly I was fat and something had to be done. Reading about her, and I don't wish to, and I wouldn't disrespect your late mother, but I have to ask this question. Was she cruel? No. I think she was, you cannot imagine since... Extracts of this book have been in the Daily Mail. You cannot imagine the number of women who have contacted me with exactly the same stories. And I think there is a degree of jealousy between mothers and daughters, which is often unacknowledged, where the mother, certainly in that period where women didn't have the opportunity, you know, my mother was every bit as bright as I am and could have been very successful in whatever job she chose. But she had to leave work when she got married and had me because you couldn't work in the civil service once you'd got married and had a child. Um, And so she was stuck at home being a housewife, bored out of her brains, I suspect. And she was rather jealous of all the things that I was doing and was probably going to be able to do. And at the same time, she was in a way kind of narcissistic, you know. She wanted to have the smartest, cleverest, most beautiful, most elegant daughter anybody had ever had. Did you ever live up to that expectation in her mind? It was very odd. Um, You know, over the years, she followed my career very closely. You know, when I presented Newsnight, I would get a phone call after the programme finished, which is obviously quite late at night. And the conversation would go, oh, Mum, hi. Uh, What do you think uh, of that interview I did with some senior politician? And she said, oh, uh, actually, love, I wasn't really listening to what you were saying, but... You know, your fringe has got a bit long and your (laughs) eyes are definitely your best feature. And you know that red top you had on? Well, with your colouring, I'm not sure red is the best cut. Night after night after night after night. So she wanted to be proud and she thought I would value her opinion, which very rarely did I. (laughs) But it didn't stop having an effect on you, even though you didn't value it. No, of course it didn't. Of course it didn't. It, it, you know, when somebody is constantly criticising, and of course you're in a business where your looks are actually important. I mean, that's what I love about the radio. When I went to the Today programme and then on to Woman's Hour, she could hear me, but she couldn't see me. <laughs> she had no idea what I was looking like. Whereas on television, you know, everybody else was obsessed with the way you looked. Let's go to your first object, Jenny. And it is a black leather mini skirt. Tell me why you have chosen this as one of your objects today. Because it was the first time I really defied my mother. 
I went to Barnsley Market and I bought it. I must have been 15. So we're talking 1965, height of fashion. Obviously, if you're brought up in Barnsley, you don't go to the King's Road in London. You go to Barnsley Market. Uh, And I bought this skirt and I took it home and I put it on and my mother saw me getting ready to go out to meet my friend Linda. We used to go to the local folk club together on a Saturday night. And uh, she said, don't think you're going out in that. It's It's nothing more than an extended belt. And I thought, oh dear, got to do something about this. So I took it off and put something else on and took it in a bag into town with me and met up with Linda, whose mother was much more fashionable, much more cool than my mother was. So I said, you take the makeup, you take the skirt, we'll meet in the toilets in Barnsley bus station when we go out. I'll change there, I'll hide the twin set and pearls and long skirt (laughs) in the toilet, change into the stuff that I want to wear, and and we'll go to the, the folk club. And then we'll come back because I always had to catch the last bus home. And I can change back and you can take them and look after the stuff at yours. And that's exactly what we did. Defiance. And she never knew. Rebellion. Um, (laughs) Did she, in her own mind, think that this is how she showed her love for you? I think she did. Yeah. She wanted to protect me. She didn't want me to have my education interrupted in any way. I I mean, I was quite surprised when she let me go to the folk club on a Saturday night with my friend Linda. But I had to be back on the 10 o'clock bus. You know, she would be standing in the bay window of our house, checking that I was getting off the bus and walking up the road safely. So, yes, you know, she loved me. Of course she did. And she was concerned that... I shouldn't look like a trollop, which she thought people in short skirts did look like trollops, and I wouldn't behave like one. So, yeah, she cared. I mean, weight is an issue which a large amount of people struggle with. That is, of course, disproportionately placed on the shoulders of of women, isn't it? Why? Well, the way women look has always been of great concern to society. We must be respectable. We must be well-behaved. And then suddenly uh, along came my generation in the 60s, sexual revolution, short skirts, which actually were the first opportunity we had to be to feel really liberated, you know, to be able to stride out in these little short skirts and not have to wear stiletto heels. You know, we wore pretty flat shoes. We were liberated by the way we wanted to look. And of course, Mary Quant was extremely influential in that. But of course, our mothers on the whole had been brought up in an entirely different environment. Were you aware at all of of mental health issues? What were they called? What was the language that was used? You had a nervous breakdown, you had a funny turn. That was it. No, nobody thought about it. In fact, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, I now realise was what would once have been called a manic depressive. And she had really serious depression to the extent that at one point she had electric shock treatment, which was dreadful because her 
short-term memory just was wiped away for quite a long time. But nobody talked about it. My mother never talked about it until about six months before she died, we sat down, I sat beside her bed. She had Parkinson's disease. She was very, very ill with it. And we started to talk about my grandmother. And I had been left at my grandparents' house quite a lot because of my father working abroad. And I started to tell her about some of the incidents that I'd had with my grandmother when I was there on my own with her. I was 11 or 12. And I said, you know, Mum, she'd suddenly go into this weird state. She'd stand in the bay window of the front of their house saying, I'm going funny under her breath. I'm going funny, I'm going funny, I'm going funny. And then she'd walk out the house and she'd head down the path opposite towards the railway line. And there was a bridge over the railway line where this path was that we used to walk a lot. And I used to run after her because I knew she was intent on suicide. One of her sisters had actually committed suicide, putting her head in a gas oven in the days when gas was really dangerous. And my mother said, so six months before she died, when I'm in my mid-50s, she said, oh, I, I used to worry about having to leave you in case she went like that. She said, because she was like that when I was a kid. And I said, well, why did we never talk about it? She said, well, you you don't want to talk about somebody having a nervous breakdown, do you? And that was it. And she was only able to acknowledge it when she was 79. How did you manage to cast those chains off and not continue with that? cycle of silence education 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 right Right. (laughs) yeah were you the first person in your family or the first woman to go to university first person wow you know we were a working class family in barnsley best compliment i've ever been paid was by michael green who was a former controller of radio 4 in fact when i first came to radio 4 and he was asked for some interview about me where they were looking for other people's comment um and he said the best thing i can say about jenny murray is she has a well-stocked mind and that's the best compliment i've ever had Mm. (laughs) that's amazing that is amazing let's get into your next object jenny with your well-stocked mind but this is a radio that you had by your bed as a child i have always loved the radio My mother was very strict about bedtime. And it was, yes, you can read for five minutes and then I'll come in and switch the light off and then you go to sleep. And I had my little transistor radio at the side of my bed and I would tune in to Radio Luxembourg and have it on as quietly as I possibly could so that she couldn't hear it. And I would listen and listen and listen. And, do you know, I still have the radio on all night. And when I grew up a little bit and I didn't listen to solely Radio Luxembourg and Radio 1, 
And I grew into what was the home service and then eventually became Radio 4. And at the end of the evening when somebody said, and I'm saying goodnight from Broadcasting House in London, and I said, oh, my goodness, what a place to be. (laughs) That's where I want to be one day. And I made it. Yes, you did. And how. <laughs> um, you owned it. Were you ever ashamed of where you came from or made to feel ashamed of where you came from? No, never. Never. Some people have accused me of being a little overproud of being a Yorkshire woman from a working class family in Barnsley. I don't think I'm overproud, but I am actually proud of it because, you know, it wasn't easy for those of us who grew up in the 60s and then tried to come into work in the 70s. If I'd come into the BBC or tried to come into the BBC with a broad Yorkshire accent, I wouldn't have stood a chance. So you had to assimilate, not integrate? Yes, I suppose that's the word. <laughs> I did have to assimilate. and But I think the next person on my list is the person who helped me assimilate. Yes, indeed. Let's speak about Florence D first, yeah. shall we? <laughs> An w- object is a human being this time. This, again, was my mother. You know, we lived in a council house and then a council estate was built behind my grandparents' house and my parents managed to get one of those houses And I loved playing out on the street. You know, all the kids played out on the street. There was no traffic. We could have roller skates. We could really do whatever we liked. My best friend next door was John Lewis. Not that one, unfortunately. (laughs) And he swore like a trooper. And all the other kids, you know, had really broad Yorkshire accents. And I was sitting one day in front of the house, trying to be helpful with a floor cloth and a bucket, trying to clean around the grate, which was outside the kitchen window. And I was sitting there going, hey, bloody hell, I can't get this bloody grate clean. And my mother came whizzing round, pulled me up by the scruff of the neck into the house. And she said, you are going for elocution lessons. I didn't even know what elocution was. I was five when that happened. She sent me for elocution lessons, but she sent me to Florence D. Firth, who I refused to call an elocution teacher. She was a speech and drama teacher. I absolutely loved her. I used to go every Friday night for my lesson and... She took me to the theatre, you know, we'd go to Sheffield, we'd go to Leeds. The big companies would come from London into theatres in those two cities, which were the closest to us. And I saw Laurence Olivier, I saw Vanessa Redgrave. I became absolutely passionate about going to the theatre. And she taught me to love poetry, to love theatre and to love performing. And there's no doubt that what she gave me was the ability. You know, I can still go to Barnsley and speak with the broadest Yorkshire accent ever, but I can also do the other. 
and she taught me how to do that. And so when it came to what am I going to do with my life, I liked writing, I'd edited the school magazine, I was nosy, which is the primary requirement for a journalist as far as I'm concerned. Indeed. And I put the two together. I, I went to Hull University to study drama. There were only four universities that had drama courses. You couldn't do it as a special subject. I had to do it with French, but I liked that anyway. I, I liked the French. But the first time we had a big Gulbenkian theatre that was pretty new when I first went to Hull. And it had a beautiful theatre with all the mod cons. It had a television studio and it had a radio studio. And I remember going into the television studio and practising and going, yeah, you know, this is okay. This combines journalism with performance. But never felt completely comfortable in in there. And then walked into the radio studio and thought, yeah, this is where I want to spend my life. Wow. Talking of teenage years and then moving forward throughout your life, how has your relationship with food changed, if indeed it has changed at all? I love it. You know, this is what people forget. We now understand that scientifically what's going on in the body, there is an explanation for why some people can eat as many chips as they like, as I said, and others eat one and they put on half a stone. So we understand why people respond differently to food. But the thing with food is it's a pleasure and it shouldn't be a guilty pleasure. And I I still, after I've had the surgery and I've lost 10 stone and I can't eat very much anymore because my stomach in the surgery was, 80% of it was cut away, thank goodness, because the little hunger hormones called ghrelins, which are in that part of the stomach that was taken away, have gone. So I don't get ravenously hungry. But now I can eat absolutely anything I want to in small quantities. And so I now, my my sons laugh at this because they have great big dinner plates which are absolutely full of food and they're not fat. They didn't inherit the gene, thank goodness. And I have a very small plate and I have just enough and I eat everything that is delicious and I take great pleasure in it. And when I'm full, I stop, which in the past I was never able to do. Let's get to your final object now. It's a book, The Female Eunuch by Jermaine Greer, which you read when you were 21. I did. And oh, wow. What effect did The Female Eunuch have on you, Jim? Uh, fantastic. To find somebody who had written something so frequently outrageous, but was saying exactly the things I had been thinking throughout my teenage and had never quite been able to put my finger on. You know, nobody taught us any feminist history in school. They still don't. You know, I, I wrote a, two books, one called A History of Britain in 21 Women and the other called A History of the World in 21 Women. And I got emails from teachers saying, oh, thank you so much for writing these books. I can use them to teach the girls because they're so little that helps us communicate women's history to 
to our students. And do you know, they said, some of these women we'd never even heard of. How can history teachers not have had an education that teaches them about women's history? You know, it doesn't teach them about the suffrage movements, about, oh, anything. It just makes me so cross. And of course, Jermaine's book wasn't about history, but it was about why are we as women expected to behave in the way that our mothers have kept telling us, you know, don't sit with your legs open, keep your knees together, always keep your knees together. Why are we so embarrassed or made to feel embarrassed by our private parts, you know? But, you know, there was so much in there that was striking chords with me and thinking, oh my goodness, I think I'm a feminist. And I am. Let's go to a passage from your book. Now, this is where you meet your parents for the first time after you left home for university. Let's hear a clip from the audiobook now. I stood waiting as car after car disembarked, peering through endless windscreens to see if I could spot my mother and father. I hadn't thought to ask what type of car they'd be driving. They'd hired their transport and picked it up in Turkey, so it wasn't a vehicle with which I was familiar. Eventually, they appeared and drove straight past me. I ran after them. Mercifully, they were going very slowly, obviously keeping an eye out for their beloved daughter. I shouted and waved frantically. Finally, my father spotted me in his rear-view mirror. He stopped the car. He jumped out. He hugged me. My mother didn't. She remained in the car, stony-faced. Come on, love, said my dad, jump in. We can't wait to see where you're living and find out everything about what you're up to. My heart had sunk to my boots. Why had mum not jumped out to greet me? I hadn't seen her for months. Why did she look so furious? No one knew how to wear their heart on their sleeve like my mother. There was no way she was going to hide her displeasure, but I had really no idea what I'd done to upset her to this extent. I climbed into the back seat behind her. She said nothing. Dad began to pull away. She turned around and looked at me with utter disdain. What the hell has happened to you? she asked. I was mystified. Was it the long hair? Was it the eye makeup? Were the clothes I wore not smart or elegant enough for her? No. She spat out the words, You look absolutely awful. You look like a baby elephant. That was Fat Cow, Fat Chance, written and read by my guest today, Jenny Murray. It is available to buy and download now. There is a link in the programme notes of this episode. And whilst we're here, do remember just to rate, comment and subscribe to the Penguin Podcast. Please let us know what you think. You can also find us, of course, on your Alexa-enabled device. Right. Jenny, what are the assumptions that people make about obesity, people who are overweight, that you'd rather society doesn't make? People assume that people who become obese take too much in and don't put enough out. So they eat too much and they don't do enough exercise. And that is not true. 
When we look at the genetics, when we look at the environment, when we look at the food industry, when we look at poverty, when we look at fat shaming and how horrible that is for people, nobody is cured from their obesity by being fat shamed. We realise it is a much, much more complicated thing. And it is, I would contend, and so would a lot of the real scientific specialists that I've spoken to, I would contend it is a disease and it needs to be treated as a disease. And I never want to hear anybody called a fat cow ever again. Jenny, what a pleasure to talk to you about your book, Fat Cow, Fat Chance today. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Testaments by Margaret Atwood. It's been 15 years since the events of The Handmaid's Tale and the Republic of Gilead still rules with an iron fist. But are things about to change? As the theocratic regime begins to decay, the lives of three women converge and set a path that could lead to liberation. You have asked me to tell you what it was like for me when I was growing up within Gilead. You say it will be helpful, and I do wish to be helpful. I imagine you expect nothing but horrors. But the reality is that many children were loved and cherished, in Gilead as elsewhere. And many adults were kind, though fallible, in Gilead as elsewhere. The book-a-winning sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, The Testaments, is available to download now.